I'm Dean Newland, and welcome to the Business of Intuition, where I coach, facilitate, train, and speak on the hard science and meaningful experience of intuitive leadership in business, so you can make better decisions, forge real connections, and creatively solve problems to amplify your impact and simplify your life. Welcome to the Business of Intuition. There are two types of employees, those that work for someone else and those that work for themselves. Each experience work in vastly different ways. The person that works for someone else enters into a transactional contract where business results following company policies and norms, and in some cases, loyalty, are paid for by a paycheck, benefits, and bonuses. The person who works for themselves would be forced to be self-reliant, a risk taker, flexible, creativity, grit, evenings and weekend work becomes the currency for success. And when I think about my own life, my father worked for the Minneapolis Star and Tribune for 35 years. It was primarily his only job. He never did want to go independent. I come along several years later, and I bounced around in some small companies here and there, some large as well, and I got this itch, this bug, this desire to be my own boss, to start my own company. So what was different between me and my father? Whatever he chose worked for him, and obviously whatever I chose, I can say quite frankly, has been very successful for me. But for the person who has had an experience working for a large company and wants to jump ship, to start their own organization, to be their own boss, what are some of the tips and what are some of the pitfalls that they should be aware of? Well, my next guest on the Business of Intuition has experience in just that. Rick West is the CEO and co-founder of Field Agent a global work-on-demand platform. Prior to starting Field Agent, Rick worked for 16 years with Procter & Gamble in various assignments in the United States, Hong Kong, and Bangkok. Since leaving B&G, he has been a startup entrepreneur for 19 years. Rick has co-founded multiple startups, including the North Star Partnering Group, Core 4 Research, Join, and most recently, Field Agent. He is a mentor and speaker within the entrepreneurial community and an active board member. Rick also has degrees in personnel in industrial relations with a minor in economics from the University of Kentucky. Rick West on the business of intuition. Well, Rick, it's great to have you on the show. I think I just want to find out, could you tell us a little bit more about Field Agent? What is it? I don't think a lot of people know, certainly unless you're maybe in the retail space, uh, but what is it? Why did you get this little business started? What's it? What, so two questions. Okay. What is it? And how did you come up with this idea? Sure, sure. And so Dean, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Pleasure. Uh, so on your think of you, the podcast that you have done over the years, I'm probably the only person here that can pay your listeners money. Okay, say more. Okay. <laughs> so I got the hook, right? That's the hook. Yeah, there you Pulling go. The hook out right now. Yeah, right. So, so field agent, we launched in the pre selfie days. Okay. So this is smartphone that came out, no front-facing camera, no video, iPhone 3S, late 2009, two-megapixel camera. It was the rage. Most of the cool kids had a flip phone, and the business people had Blackberries. But this iPhone had been out for about a year. The App Store had just opened. 
And I was uh, had just left P&G some years before, and we were doing shopper marketing, shopper research type of work. As we started to engage in that, this little smartphone thing came out. We said, gosh, I wonder if we could use the phone to capture data or insights inside of a home or a store hmm. that would keep me and my wife, my wife was one of my partners at the time, flying all over the United States, Canada, and Europe to get data inside of retail locations and homes. So we pulled up our phones. We didn't pull up our MacBooks, pulled up our phone, you know, and Googled it right there on the phone because it was the cool thing to do. And no one at that time was using the phone to capture data. The business model at the time was download an app, get eyeballs on it, click on an ad. And we thought, gosh, there's got to be someone. So I'm managing five LLCs. We're doing all this work. Waited three more months and said, gosh, I wonder if anyone's using the phone to capture data. And they weren't. And we thought, we're going to be like those guys that said they invented Instagram and Spotify, but we're just too busy to do it. We're going to be <laughs> on a podcast like this. Oh, listen, I invented Spotify, but I was just too busy. We look yeah. like fools, right? So we started working nights and weekends again and launched in April of 2010, the very first app in iTunes that paid cash. Okay, very first app that paid cash. And we use the metadata and the, the GPS information on the phone to qualify where people were in the data. So it turned into a mystery shopping tool or a data collection tool that we paid everyday people, people like us, while you're shopping, while you're out to capture data. Now, that seems straightforward today, but at the time, again, coming from PNG in a corporate world, when I was talking to people like you, they would have pulled up their, their, their phone and said, well, Rick, uh, I don't know how it works. Right. And then they would say, well, if you take the picture, how are you going to train them to use the phone? Yeah. And then they said, well, gosh, if they took the picture on their phone, how do they upload it to a computer to send you the picture? I mean, those were the days. And so you fast forward to where we are today. And so we have an amazing marketplace of solutions for people that have business at retail, either brick and mortar or online. Our marketplace is called Plum. It's plumshop.com. Hmm. And we do crowdsourcing work. We do ratings and reviews, capture data, mystery shopping, insights. And we do that for suppliers and retailers that want to have everyday people capture information. Now, that's the work and that's the tool. If you go back to the P&G question, you know, I lived in the world of P&G for 17 years. Yeah. Uh, United States, Asia, I spent time in Hong Kong and Thailand. And just reached this point that said, gosh, I just like to do something on my own. And knew in this little microcosm of Northwest Arkansas, there were a ton of people who were doing what P&G did really, really exceptionally well, which is look at the shopper and look at the consumer, have that be front-facing, and bring that in to make decisions for your products at retail. So we came here and opened up a classic boutique marketing, boutique research, consulting deal, working with suppliers like P&G to help them play at the level of P&G. So hmm. I took... If you're listening and you're an entrepreneur or a corporate person, I took a skill set that I had, hmm. I got a couple of partners, and then made, took the step to take that skill set and to solve a problem, which was I need to do better at retail, I need to understand the shopper, and I need to act like PNG, but I don't have the resources to do that. So that was the problem we solved. Fast forward right, to so- where we are today, and the rest is history. So let's just let's make this really rudimentary. Let's say I've got a very popular bakery and yep. I want to increase sales for my, I don't know, just choose anything. Maybe it's a, a baguette, right? Yeah. And I and I want to interface with you to be able yeah. to understand what's popular, what's not, and how to increase sales. 
How does that work? I mean, give us the steps. Yeah, so the, the beauty of this B2B marketplace is that you would go to plumshop.com. You would go to our marketplace. You shop it the same way we'd shop at Amazon. Okay. And you say, you click on this little thing, says solution, I have a new item. You click on the, I have a new item. And we would give you seven to 10 products that would help you sell your new item. One specifically could be, let's have someone buy a new product, try a new product, and they could give you research, tell you about it. Or they could buy it and try it and give you a ratings review on your store. Or they would buy a product, try a product, and become kind of a social media influencer. And so we would send in core demographics, females 18 to 35, males 40 to 50, whatever it is, have them buy, try your product. You never have to leave your office, no meetings with me. You click, click, give me a picture of what you want, tell me the price, give me the demographic, swipe hmm. your credit card. And I can send five people or a thousand people to go buy your product and try it, give you ratings and reviews. And you now have core demographics that are buying brand new products without having to do coupons and ads. And you hope someone's going to see it. Sounds interesting. So I, I'm not in the retail space to this degree. Is this something at one point could work in the service industry? Absolutely. So you can imagine the quick serve restaurants, the amount of... Uh, the only beverages and food we've you know purchased over the, over the years I had people try right. mystery shopping. We've also had firms. Uh, I've got a friend of mine that has uh, rental properties, and he has people drive by and take a picture to ensure the trash is out and the mm. lawn has been mowed because the VRBOs or the Airbnb people are complaining that the yard doesn't look well. Right. He calls his provider. Says, "Oh, I mowed it yesterday." He goes in, types in. Sends a picture to take a picture of the lawn to make sure you can see a picture of the mailbox. Yeah. Pays it, slaps his credit card. $10 later, the next morning, he's got a photo that shows the lawn is like 10 inches high, hasn't been mowed, calls his supplier <laughs> and fires them. What do you mean you fired me? Because you didn't mow the lawn. How do you know? Because I'm looking at a photo. Again, the, the phone doesn't lie. I have the exact date, the right yeah. location and everything. And he's like, well, I, they're got $10, Dean, and they're out of here. So. Any type of public-facing location that you need data, insights, or engagement. Public-facing. So like professional services, I'm even thinking like consulting and, and lawyers and doctors. Well, maybe doctors could be an exception, but professional services, could you even use this in that industry or those industries? It, it depends on how far you can go with the mystery shopping aspect. We have quite a few private equity firms and VCs that hire us to look at uh, number of doors, number of facings. Uh, they actually said, hey, they, they're telling me that they've got eight floors leased this apart of this major business building. And so we go and take a picture of the masthead that shows there's only four versus uh, eight. I mean, right. so if you can get in publicly, we can make it happen. Now, the private part is you'd like to know what people are thinking inside of their home. You want to engage there. We can do that as well. But But once you get past that, it's a little more difficult. Now, doctors, We've had people coming in and we've mystery shopped saying, listen, I've got a sore shoulder and I'd like to engage. We have mm. people do that in vet clinics. I mean, so it's it's classic type of mystery shopping when you'd like to, but it's data insights and marketing. Interesting. Fantastic. So, all right, let me pivot a little bit. You mentioned yeah. PG and, you know, you know, your former life and with a large multinational company, and then you all of a sudden uh, decided to jump ship and to start this up. Right. And it sounds like it's gone quite well. Fascinating idea. What do you think are the different mindsets or skill sets are needed for a startup person like yourself versus someone who's 
born and bred corporate person who has all of the positives and negatives, but it's it, there's this different type of world to, to work for a large organization. How yeah. do you, what, what are the differences and how do you make that shift? Yeah, let's speak a little bit to the to the culture. So let, let's use use an example. So so tell me about your childhood. Where did you grow up? Minneapolis. Uh, you have jobs as a kid. Did you kind yeah, of do? I, I started off. My first job was as a paper boy. I think probably when I was maybe ten or twelve, and I worked ever since. Okay, and what was your next job? Uh, I worked at a place called Finlayson's Fine Foods. I washed dishes. And then right, I worked so for a restaurant. <laughs> so you 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 are now my by base. Okay, you're you're the great example okay. that we're going to tell everyone listening. And what happens is you go into college, you get into the corporate world, and whether it's five years, ten years down the road, you lose that paper boy restaurant worker, farmer, just this person that loves to do work, the swimmer that used to get up every morning and swim or the athlete, you lose that. And then this corporate thing provides an HR umbrella, a structure Mm -hmm. umbrella. I can delegate things. I mean, so there's this work ethic, okay, that's pretty difficult to hold on to when everything you can think is a lot of thinking, but the, the work part is difficult. And you and I both know as entrepreneurs, when you come outside of the corporate world, the first thing you realize is there's a lot of work to be done. There's yeah. no one to delegate to. The second right. thing you realize pretty quickly is that all this thing, all the things you did before your corporate world, you had friends and coaches and relationships and you depended upon each other. You get into a corporate world and you compete against everyone. Mm-hmm. You don't have any friends. They're all frenemies. You're competing for the same role. You don't want to show weakness. Then we get out in the entrepreneurial world and you realize Gosh, if I want to be successful, I have to depend on other people. And I have to have legit relationships. I can't just delegate to people and tell them what to do. And so if you stay in the corporate world too long, my opinion, it's somewhat difficult to get out and get that work ethic again and understand relationships because you just have this different corporate mindset and you got to get scrappy all over again. And you're like, ah, it's too hard. I'll just do five more corporate roles and go retire. And so there, you reach a point where you need to get back out again and get scrappy and work hard on the relationships and be genuine. You got to trust people differently. And so I find that my friends in the corporate world aren't willing to leave the structure and the machine that's behind of them because they see the hours I work, the effort I put in and, and all the things that are required. They the live vicariously through me yes, without really to kind of go down that path. So then what was it about you that wanted to jump ship? I think a couple of things. One, my background, I talk about this kid growing up in Appalachia. And so the culture part for me was, you know, get it done and work hard. My brother works in the coal mines. I still see that in him. So there was that part of that was always in my DNA. Mm-hmm. The other thing was, and, and I hear this about international assignments or expat assignments. When I left the U.S. and went to Asia, my three years there, almost to a person, they said it's close to 70% of people that take an expat assignment leave the company when they come back to the US because they got a taste of entrepreneurism or kind of the wild, wild west like they've never had. And they're dissatisfied coming back to work in a cubicle. So when I got into Asia, it was like being a paper boy all over again. Man, it was, it was new. What, what was it? Was it, was it, not, it wasn't just, I'm sorry for jumping in, Rick, but it yeah. wasn't just being in Asia, I'm oh, assuming, no. right? I mean, it because was getting away from the Bangkok and, Yeah, it was a different, I'm sure it's, but is it, what made it wild, wild west again? Was it the fact that you were starting something new and you were the new division in that company? Or was it that the culture that you were getting into 
forced you into that sort of wild, wild west scrap. You got to make it work because I got to develop relationships, language barriers, all the other things that go yeah. along with it. So let's let's use Hong Kong versus New York. Green apple to red apple, not a lot of change. Cubicles, infrastructure, it's great. Yeah. And then you leave there and you go to Malaysia. Right. Or then you go to South Korea and you spend some time in Taipei and you go to a village in China and you start to realize, gosh, I've got to start thinking on my feet again. I've got mm. to get really in, you know, ingenuity has to kind of come in. You've got to yeah. negotiate. They're not going to do it because I, I told them to do it. I've got to really convince them and I got to sell differently. And when you're in a corporate cubicle, you're like, well, I work for PNG and I told you you needed to do it. So you're going to do that. And then you've right. got a distributor in mainland China saying, I don't have to do anything for you. You're right. like, well, I just told you. It's like, I don't need to do that. You're like, wow, right. I guess I'm kind of on my own again. So it's not necessarily Asia. You lost the support structure and says, I mm. need to think differently. My mind had to get back to those days where I've got to figure it out on my own. And I've got to deliver the papers in the morning and my parents have already left for work and I left something. Well, what are you going to do? Well, that was yeah. me in Malaysia stuck trying to figure something out. And you're like, wow, I don't want to go back to this corporate cube in Cincinnati. I love the autonomy, the entrepreneurism that I had. And I wanted that kind of got me over the hump to let me do that on my own. All right. So the large corporate structure that you just described, a lot of people who work within them would say, I would love to have somebody like you work in our company because we want that work ethic. We want that development of relationships and 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 getting things done you know uh, not taking anything for granted so i guess my question is you know we we hear companies talk about we are an entrepreneurial minded organization and yet there's a hundred thousand people in there with offices all over the place is it possible and if so, how do we bring entrepreneurialism into these large organizations where you typically don't see it? Yeah, I think part of it is, and again, I'm a little bit dated, you know, somewhat dated. It's been a while since I've been in the corporate world, but I've got plenty of friends that are engaging and I talk through. Uh, the moment, you know, Dean, you come in, you have a really big idea. You could see where you could push this. And the person says, well, I don't think legal is going to approve it. And man, you missed the budget window. I don't know. Mm. I think we're going to miss the budget window here. And that's not really part of your job. And little Joe over here, that's kind of his space. And so I got to go work management to make sure you can, it's like, it's not worth it. Yeah. And so as long as you're within really, really tight rails, you could maybe be a little bit aggressive entrepreneur. But the moment you get outside, I, I can remember one example, I was working on this warehousing adjustment thing. And I said, hey, we can use this data. The data could come in. And we could process the data and we don't have to have people do manual transactions. And we mm. had like 15 people doing manual transactions. I put it together, laid it out, proved it out. I can remember my boss looking at me. He's like, you know, just don't think I'm willing to push that one up the ladder. I think mm. it's fine. And what am I going to do with these 15 people? Yeah. And I'm like, really? Yeah. He's like, yeah, you should just go on. Great idea. Just go on. And, and so you, you run up enough of those. It's like, really tough. Now, there's always the example of the person that came up with the next whatever, and, and that's fantastic. But for the average person in corporate America, there's still a little bit of shut up and row, right. participate in. And after a while, you're like, gosh, I want to be creative entrepreneurial, but I guess I'll be more the most amazing, productive worker I can be. And that's yeah. different than being the most amazing, productive entrepreneur I can be. 
Right. Unless you've relegated me or I've got a job in research and development and I've been trained and told and given the freedom to be autonomous with my ideas. And we do a lot of brainstorming sessions and we're at the tip of the spear of all this stuff that comes back afterwards. I get that. And we all yeah. wish we had those roles when we were 30. I wish I had a role like that. Yeah. So do you think people are attracted to those corporate structures with those tight rails as you describe it because their style likes that? Or do you think they're, you're sort of trained into that mindset? Meaning I, I sometimes, I'm going to answer my own question. I'm going to see what you think. Okay. I kind of think that, that there are some people who have sort of an entrepreneurial DNA in them. I mean, there, it's, you could probably do a, a variety of different types of style assessments and say, yep, that's the entrepreneur. That's the person who's going to be more comfortable in a company. Uh, but can you can you train a person? Can you encourage a person who is not normally from a style perspective, entrepreneurial in the way in which you just described, can they get there with encouragement, with some sort of support or, or not? My experience as a, as a corporate manager, and, and, and I, I spent a lot of time in the supply chain world, manufacturing, uh, customer world, customer facing type of world. Um, I am confident that through processes and time, I can teach anyone to be a really creative person. Creativity mm -hmm. can be, I mean, you've got processes and tools that you can make that happen. But to go from being creative to the, and this is an idea, I'm going to follow it and see if I can make it work is different. And what I found, I guess is, you know, Rick's, you know, understanding is that when you found someone like you, Dean, that was creative and had the entrepreneurial spirit, you'd look at your friend and say, they're gone in a year. No way they're going to stay here. They're going to go somewhere else because the, that insatiable need isn't isn't met at the speed and and the the amount of change that they're they're yearning for. Yeah, there are other folks that are like, man, I is going to progress, and that person may be the next VP of the company, tremendously creative, but they're not out trying to change the company. Right, they've, they've relegated that over here, but I'm going to be really excellent at what I do, and there's a role for that. I was just struggling within the rails and I was struggling within the company. I kept wanting to create change. And it's like, mm. you just need to settle down. Mm -hmm. You just need to slow down a little bit. And after a while, uh, I had really good mentoring that said, Rick, you're, you're hitting year 17 and you've got to decide, are you going to stay here and retire? Or are you going to move on? Because at, at year 2025, the handcuffs are legit. I mean, I already had pretty good handcuffs, but you reach a point where the math says, what am I doing? Yeah, I'll start all over at 50, you know, retire and go yeah. do something else. So you hit this point in your 30s where you probably need to go or you need to stay. Those golden handcuffs. You They're know? real. I mean, they're, yeah. they're legit. Yeah. Yeah. We've worked with some Fortune 5, Fortune 1 companies. I don't want to name them, yeah, <laughs> but where these kids are coming right out of school and they are Victorians and they are the smartest of the smarts and what they pay these people is unbelievable. Of course, why would it? And then you get used to that lifestyle. You get yeah. used to sending your kids to private schools and going on international trips twice, two or three times a year and right. a couple of wonderful cars in your garage. And all of a sudden you go like, I don't know if I want to start over as an entrepreneur, unless you've got a nice little nest egg and you can you know, invest in your own idea. Well, Tell me about the piece for you. It's, it's interesting piece. So if you talk to people like that, um, when, when we were leaving the company, we, we were actually blessed enough to take a package. Okay. They were looking for 2000 volunteers. 
My wife was uh, on a spousal leave of absence. We're in Asia together. She worked for Proctor. I did. I had two mm. friends. And it's when we took the package, we had you know significant years, a year plus salary, plus benefits, and they were going to cover us for a period of time. So instead of taking that and spending it, taking it and using it to live on, we use that as angel money. So I tell mm. people, P&G was my angel investor. So we took four people, significant dollars, and we put that into our business, used it as a startup. So I had a, a guy I was mentoring the other day and he had a package. He said, yeah, I got six months. I said, what are you going to do? So I'm going to travel, do some backpacking. I said, dude, you've been talking about starting a business forever. Yeah. He left with $80,000. Huh. I said, well, instead of traveling and coming back and asking me for $80,000, why don't you take this as seed money? He said, yeah, but I just need some me time and I want to kind of, you know, get out. And I'm like, oh, okay. And that guy's yeah. not an entrepreneur, right? No, no, right, right. But, but you're going to find that many people you engage with today that are struggling, what am I going to do next? I think you need to lean into and ask for a package if you're an entrepreneur and use it as seed money because that's the best money you've ever gotten. Because you go to an angel or a VC, there are expectations. You take your company money, right? It's it's fantastic. I think it's a missed opportunity for many people today. All right. So two questions. So uh, all right, I've got this uh seed money. Uh as you say, I got eighty thousand dollars as an example. I'm letting go of a of a company I've been around with for a while. I want to start a business, but I don't even know what I want to start. Right. You know, how, what do you mentor to the people that come to you with that question? I know I want to do something. I yeah. know that I want to try. I've got the courage to make it happen. I've got my family's ducks in a row. I just don't know where to start in terms of the ideation of what this business should look like. Two, two things. Well, well, like three. The first one is don't get too excited about having the perfect dream idea of starting out. <laughs> Yeah. But but the first thing you look for is uh, whether it's in your industry or what you know, find a problem that someone needs to solve. Perfect. If you can solve the problem, right, that's number one. But yeah. the best advice thing that I've ever been given is this little nugget. And this is where everyone leans into the podcast. Like you slow down, pull off the side <laughs> of the road, and you're listening right now. Is that even if you find a great problem to solve, and this came from Dr. Steve Graves, Great executive coach, fantastic guy. He said, Rick, you are only as good as you invoice and collect. Mm. If you can't invoice and collect, you are just working on an expensive hobby. Right. So if you can find a problem to solve and you can get a complete stranger to pay you, oh my goodness, who cares what it looks like? Who right. cares? what? It's a widget. Yeah. I mean, you go drive that. But most people, man, I want this cool thing and I like this. Look how cool it is. And I asked him, I said, well, who have you talked to? Well, my mom loves it. My wife thinks it's amazing. My two buddies think it's awesome. I said, well, have you sold it? Well, no, but I'm telling you, I, I'm looking for investment dollars. I'm like, wait, you? Yeah. And so I introduced them to a couple of strangers. They're like, nah, I'm not paying for that. They're like, well, they don't know what they're looking at. I said, no, 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 no. Hey, your customer knows what they're looking at. You've fallen in love with an idea, not a true solution to a problem, and you can't convince a stranger to give you money. You're just going to have an expensive hobby, and you should keep doing it, but you're never going to make it. And so those two things are really super important, Dane, when people get that's started. Really, I love that. I think that's really good advice. So, all right, now I've got uh, my good idea, and I've got some people who want to buy it. I mean, yeah. hey, I've, I've got two. But now I'm getting a little bit of uh, money coming in the front door and I start, I got to build a team. Right. 
advice on the kind of team one should be building in startup mode. Yeah, it, it's a it's a little bit overstated about the, having the whole opposite thing. But if I've learned anything over the years, I heard this from Andy Stanley's leadership podcast: is that as a leader, as an entrepreneur, whether you're at two people or a hundred people, put yourself in position to do only the things that you are uniquely designed to do as you scale. And when mm. you first start out, Dan, you have to do everything. I mean, you're right. Like not to try, but, but when you start to scale, hiring another person like you, which is what you want to do because you want to be like in arms, isn't necessarily the wisest thing to do because you still need, need to do unique things that are meeting the passion. How can I go find person A and B? And I tell people when you're starting out, the first thing you need is a really smart person that was either a swimmer or a farmer or someone that just understands how to do work. And if you can find that person that you can delegate to and have them do work, that's the first workhorse you need. Now, does, does that mean it's an analytics person? Is it a finance person? Is it an ops person, customer? Certain point is, if they know how to work, you're smart enough to teach them. The second thing is, is that you've got to find somebody that can help you scale, which is the salesperson. I don't mm. care what the work ethic is, man. If you could sell and get out there and deliver and you're getting paid on numbers, if you're the brains and you've got the vision and you've got someone that can get work done and I've got someone talking to customers, bringing people in, I think you'd be shocked at how far you can go in life with something like that. Now, you eventually have to scale the second smart person and the third one and the fourth one to really scale the operations piece of it. But those, yeah. are, those are roles. And in most cases, the entrepreneur says, well, I can sell. Yeah, but who's working on the product? Well, I can work on the product. Well, it's just right. too much. So right. find a good salesperson, find a good ops person, lower your head and go. I often find that these entrepreneurs that you describe have a certain style in which they see the vision and they are driven at a speed to get things done abnormally faster than most other people. Yes. And in that case, I sometimes see, and I put myself in the same category, that the fact that others aren't going as fast as me is one, an indicator that maybe they don't believe in what I'm doing or what we're doing, and it's resistance, or maybe that I, I would sometimes wonder, is the slower approach the right balance for the speed approach? Meaning it's not just the different functions that we play. Right. I need an ops person, I need a salesperson, I'm gonna take care of this, we have our own lanes. But it's also, I need somebody to balance my speed. I need right. somebody to say, let's slow down a second and think through this to see if, in fact, we should do this or whatever the case may be. Speak to that a little bit. Yeah. So when I'm when I'm coaching someone, and, and in most cases, I've got either a super, super young person getting started or they're just at the point where they're selling and they want to scale a little bit. And I kind of go down the path of you got to put some rails up and avoid shining avoid chasing shiny objects because what happens in that speed conversation is that it's not that I can't keep up with you here, but you've already come up with the next five big ideas. Yeah. Right. And so I was like, I was like, I like, you're, you're killing me here. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, to deliver and scale. I'll be Dean. You're like, well, you can do this. You can do that. Let's run, spin this one up. Let's roll this up. So I tell folks is that you can go really, really wide for a period of time but the art of an entrepreneur that, that really is smooth, they understand how to edit. They just begin to edit and deselect. 
and you mm. can see them getting razor sharp. Now they may go into a room with three buddies and have five new ideas, but even then they've learned they need to edit and take that down so that people can scale within these rails and keep up with them. But eventually someone says, I, I don't know what I believe in anymore. We had three ideas and I thought we were this and now I'm just tired. I can't keep chasing yeah. you. And that's not a healthy place. And when you're ready to now ask for seed money or the private equity money or the VCs, like I can't even follow this guy because he's yeah. not going to spend my money on the machine. He's going to go come up with five other things. So that is, right. um, I think that's a learned trait that entrepreneurs have to understand. You can still get entrepreneurism and excitement, but you got to deselect. Right, right. And going back a little bit to the, I think we're saying the same thing, but the speed idea, the the work ethic of the entrepreneur who goes so fast and is coming up with a new idea all the time. I see the the tendency that they can create an environment that could possibly burn people out. Yes. Those who just don't run as fast can't keep up. And it's it's not a bad thing, but it does have that, that risk that you lose some good people because you're not modulating the speed to allow them to catch up. And then I also wonder, and I'm curious about your thoughts, with this great resignation time that we're in where the power has moved away from the employer to the employee, where they have much more options, we can work from home. I'm calling the shots more maybe than I have as an an employee than maybe I've had in, in years. Are you seeing that that people are attracted to working for an entrepreneur or are they saying, no, I want to go to a place that is a little bit more comfortable and more certain? Yeah, I, I think there is something to be for the more comfortable and certain. I get that. But, uh, but I'm, I'm a bell curve guy, right? So bell curves are here. I think you've got extreme people that just want to be told what to do. You've got yeah. the other extreme. But I think the big middle is still saying, if I can follow a leader that is focused on something that's bigger than me. Yes. I want to go be a part of that. And there's some flexibility in that conversation. I think we're in great shape today. I, I get the whole resignation thing. Right. But on the other extreme over here, yeah, I think it's just easier for the people that would have stayed in the same job forever. Like I'm done now. Whereas before they would have just stayed there forever and been a part of the mm. hamster wheel and kept going. I think the that, that big whale tail of people here are like, I want to work for maybe it's the right company or the right piece. But if I don't have a leader that's driving something really cool and big, I'll go find something else because it's too easy now for me to find it because I don't have to relocate. That's right. And so I think that's point. a part of us. The, 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 the yearning part for you know young folks, at least I'm trying to encourage them if I'm trying to coach them, the yearning part yeah. is that everything has a season. And if you can lower your head in this season of your life, and do really, really good work and, and really, really focus. I'm going to come alongside you and mentor you here, but but I'll come alongside you when you leave and I'll help you find the next assignment. Mm-hmm. And they kind of look at me. And, and we we have team members and we have alumni. We have amazing alumni that used to work for us. I, we have three people. One's a VP and one's our director of people that, uh, and another guy is a, a director in sales that left us for four years and came back. And they're amazing folks right now, still working in our organization. Because when they left, I didn't stop mentoring them. When they left, I no longer, I didn't stop talking to them because Dean, you as a person, and I'm focusing on you, 
Why would that change when you left? If you give me the opportunity to come alongside you and we're both after the same thing. So yep. if you can pour into me, I can pour into you. What's hard is, is like, eh, I'm not happy. And I give you two weeks and I leave. I'm like, really? Yeah. yeah. And and I think that resignation piece has made it easy for those folks that were going to leave anyway. They just go. Yeah. And I don't know yeah. that I'm going to fix that. I really don't. I understand that. But I do like the phrase or the word alumni to think about yeah. your employees as a relationship that you have forever. You have and to. even if even if they don't work for you. And I see that with organizations still, like somebody leaves and all of a sudden, where do they go? And we never hear about them anymore. Right. You know, and, and I think the language of, of an alumni sort of evokes this idea that we're still in relationship with them. They may come back at some point or they might re, they might refer us to another yeah, yeah. supplier or company or we just might want to hang out with them over Christmas. I mean, who knows? But so, so we invite them. We have tailgating parties. We invite them to. They get invited to our Christmas party, and we have a birthday party every year. We invite them back, and our fantastic. alumni come back, and they're you're part of what we do. Now there are some that you know left, and it's there's kind of a struggle. And this isn't sure perfect, uh, yeah. But in general, people are like yeah, Rick or his team helped me think about next assignment, and instead of me leaving in two weeks, I it was like a two month horizon, and I worked with them and. They actually, you know, called ahead. I mean, we, we really worked with them because I wanted to be successful. Yeah. And that's been really cool from a culture standpoint. I love it. I love it. So, Rick, um, wonderful work. It's been great chatting with you. Uh, tell the people who are listening in on this podcast how they can follow you, how they can connect with you. Yeah. Anything uh, on social media, just take a look at uh, Plum Marketplace whether it's LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever the case may be, or if you want to go in and shop and we actually want to help out, it's plumshop.com. And that's where you can use resources. But for me, I'm much like you, Dean. I'm a LinkedIn guy. Yeah. If you DM me, Rick West at Field Agent on LinkedIn, if you're a friend of Dean's, this podcast, you're a friend of mine. So you'd be surprised. Appreciate I might that. actually return someone's uh, DM and we can schedule some time and have a great conversation. Sounds wonderful. Hey, it's been great to get to know you a bit, and I hope our paths cross sometime again in the future. I'm sure they will. Relationships matter, Dean. You got it. You're, you're an alumni now of this podcast. I love it. I love it. <laughs> right. Thank you for listening to The Business of Intuition. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about Dean or Mission Facilitators Leadership, go to mfileadership.com. That's mfileadership.com.